and welcome to the Open Government Podcast. I'm Richard Pietro. And I'm Samir Vasta. Each episode of the Open Government Podcast, we bring you an interview with someone working on open government and citizen engagement in their community. And today we're speaking with Tracy Lorio, who has been in this open government and open data space for a very long time, or at least a, a good chunk of time, and, and more specifically in this community community known as civil society. So hello, Tracy. Why, why don't you tell us what civil society is all about? I'll tell you what I know about civil society. Uh, the work that I did uh, consisted of working with the Social Planning Council of Ottawa back in about 1999-2000. Uh, I'd just gotten my GIS degree, all fresh, shiny and new, and I was out in the field all of a sudden outside of the academic environment working uh, to do community-based type of research, only to discover at that time that to do community-based research, you needed to purchase data from Statistics Canada. There were no really uh, accessible web portals available like we see now all over the place with open data portals. Um, and, and therefore, to work with any kind of administrative or public data, you had to do an awful lot of cold calls to multiple government departments for multiple hours, sometimes just to build a couple of indicators either on you know waste management or poverty issues or the number of social houses uh, in a community or things such as uh, the number of people on the social housing registry. And at that time, there were about 15 social planning councils in Toronto. And one of the things that we decided to do at that time was to group purchase data between and among us under a consortium kind of license um, developed a, a software tool by which we could uh, find and use these kinds of data and share them between and amongst ourselves so that we could actually start producing community-based types of bulletins. And that would, that would consist of data related to, um, you know, if you were to locate a laundry co-op in the city of Ottawa, where would you do that? And you would look at data such as social housing. You would look at data in terms of, of uh, income rates. You would look at uh, where the shelters are located and where the rooming houses are located. Then you would do a kind of geolocational analysis to do that. But again, finding those data and using those data and negotiating access to those data were quite troublesome. Concurrently, uh, there were a group of people, um, quasi-civil society, I guess, type of organization, less non-profitable and charitable sector, but uh, in, within research libraries, who had done something very similar, and they had developed something called the Data Liberation Initiative, and they are the precursors, really, to data access movements here in Canada, and they were doing that kind of work um, in the beginning of the mid-1980s, and they did something very similar. They developed a consortium between and among research libraries. They co-purchased data, and they made those data available to faculty and to students. Now, what inspired them to do their work was a decade of lost research on Canada. Because census data were so cost prohibitive at that time, Canadian faculty and Canadian students became experts on the U.S. because the data there were free. I just wanted to follow up on that, is that sure. one of the challenges that we find in the open data movement right now is kind of around mm. uh, people um, not wanting to relinquish control over their data or people not knowing how to do it, uh, how to create something that is uh, parsable by the community once it's opened up. Are those similar problems you had at the start of this kind of data liberation, data access movement, or did you have a whole other uh, set of challenges that you had to face? 
we had those same challenges, except they were far more entrenched. Um, there was a lot more trepidation as to the kinds of stories that might be told with the data. Um, furthermore, there was actually no conception that there could be some kind of centralized control, uh, use, access, and dissemination point for data that administrators produced. So the thing that was the most difficult was having to negotiate every single year, oftentimes with different staff, um, over the same type of data. So, for example, someone might have a job, they retire, they move on, or there's some kind of lateral or horizontal or vertical movement within the institution. They leave, but they also bring with them the institutional memory tied to those particular data sets that were produced. Or those data sets just stop being produced as a result of that person changing jobs. So there was a lot less what I would call um, understanding of data management types of issues and continuity in the production of data sets. And of course, much less understanding that, you know, in one part of the city, data are produced a certain way and another part of the city, data might be produced in another way. And that if we actually wanted to bring those two data sets together, they need to be classified. The ontologies need to be the same. The geographies need to be the same. So there was even less standards then than there are actually now. Now, I'd like to bring you a little bit to the present and talk about mm. one of the listservs that you run. I don't know if you run more than one, but I'm assuming you do because you're extraordinarily busy. But it's the Civic mm. Access Listserv where I'm, I'm a member to it. I don't really listen much, or sorry, let me rephrase. I don't really speak much on it, but I try to listen to it because you have all oh. these great minds that are sharing policy uh, expectations and how to frame things and sharing knowledge. There's so much great activity on the Civic Access Listserv, but I would almost say that sometimes that can be too intimidating for a newbie to enter into to something like civic access. So let me ask you a question here. How do you bridge that gap from sort of the Uber policy wonk, those that are super engaged, to the sort of average citizen? Like, how do you go from average citizen to civic access? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, first, uh, one of the things that's interesting about civic access is it was started, it was the first uh, Canadian list to discuss access to to public data back in 2005. And that list came together primarily because um, I had met Michael Lentzner at the um, uh, UNESCO Information Society meetings that were based out of Winnipeg. And he had heard me give a talk on issues related to access to public data. And also, uh, we were part of the drafting team for the UN Civil Society documents, where we actually put, as in the preamble and at the very highest ranking points, access to public data in countries, uh, in, in different civil society organizations in different countries. So we started this list because we realized that just with our network, and this was also with Danielle Haran, who was on the list, and Stéphane Guidon, who was on the list, and a number of other people who were the initial founders. Gabe Shawnee um, is on the list. Uh, Hugh McGuire, who runs um, uh, LibriVox, was also one of the early founders. We had realized that it was possible to get a list together primarily of experts, 
Uh, but experts from multiple backgrounds uh, with multiple forms of knowledge. And so we have their community Wi-Fi people, public policy people, uh, archivists, uh, computer scientists, uh, mathematicians, indicators, statisticians, librarians, and so on, government officials from all different kinds of ranks um, and all different kinds of departments. And the objective was, was to allow people who did have expertise in those areas to be able to have that educated conversation. So in a way, um, the civic access list was never really designed um, for the average citizen. It was really a list made for people who were already working in that space um, to provide them with a place to communicate with others in that space so that they could take whatever intelligence was coming on that list and then be able to use that to promote different activities in their different jurisdictions or their different areas of work. Um, and I still think that that's probably not a bad mandate for it to have um, because then we're not reinventing the wheel with 101 stuff. One of the conscious decisions that we made was to make the archive public. So you can go and search back through the archive all the way back until 2005, and you'll get access to thousands and thousands and thousands of not only conversations, but as you know, Richard, an awful lot of really good URLs to really top resources around the world. That sounds like a brilliant resource, and I do encourage all our listeners, if they're already not on the list, to check out that archive. Before we wrap up, uh, we've, got a, we've got a few seconds left, and you've been part of this movement from kind of its seminal stages. So as someone who's mm. been with it for a very long time, uh, could you give us maybe a 30 or 45 second look at what you want the future to be and what you anticipate the future to be? Well, but what I would love to see is civil society organizations like the ones that I was talking about the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, social planning councils, you know, who knows, maybe Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or whoever, uh, really from the kind of the NGO side of things, to be involved in open data, but also um, that people who are currently involved in open data bridge the gap and start working with those other civil society organizations. Um, it would be really great to get people uh, far more politically engaged in issues related to the governance um, of data, the political economy of data, the dissemination of data more broadly, and deliberative um, democracy more broadly, um, as opposed to simply uh, opening the data, but actually holding government accountable to being far more open than it actually is at the moment in Canada. And, and I think that's a nice way to sort of wrap things up, because one of the great things about having a resource like you, Tracy, is that you're able to see because you've been in this for so long that you, you're able to see everything. You're seeing how it's growing out. Things are trending. And it's always nice from an outside perspective to see that there's a foundation. Thank you very much, Tracy, for participating in, in today's podcast. And um, what, what's your Twitter handle, by the way? It's uh, Tracy Lorio, T-R-A-C-E-Y. L-A-U-R-I-A-U-L-T. Sorry, it's a bit long, everybody. <laughs> I think that works. Thanks so much, Tracy. And thanks, everyone else, for listening to us today. We'll be back soon with our next interview with someone from the open government community. If you've got any questions about today's episodes or anything uh, that we've discussed about today, the hashtag for the podcast is OGTPOD, OGTPod, and Tracy just gave you her Twitter handle, so don't hesitate to reach out to her. And thanks again to Keith McDonald and Cheryl's Crush for providing the music for the podcast. My name is Richard Pietro, and I'll catch you later. Talk soon.